It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode gets into topics that some listeners may find very disturbing. It includes details about the murders of two young girls, as well as domestic violence. Please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800 799-7233 if you or someone you know is experiencing abuse. Hey everybody, this is Anya Kane from The Murder Sheet checking in to say that uh, today's episode will actually be unscripted. It's just going to be Kevin and I talking about basically the Logan search warrant and affidavit and sort of discussing all these recent developments no script, so if we sound a bit <laughs> weird or unrehearsed, then that's why. But we just wanted you guys to get our takes on everything and sort of have a more un- unfiltered conversation about what's been going on. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenley. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the murder sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is the Delphi Murders, the Logan Warrant Analysis. (laughs) 
So the big question that everybody is asking us now that we've released these documents is, uh, do we think, are we saying that Ron Logan is likely, Bridge Guy is likely the murderer? And the answer to that is an emphatic no. This is a situation where we are striving to obtain credible information about the Delphi case and the Delphi investigation. And we feel that the Logan affidavit and search warrant gives us a really clear snapshot of where that investigation is in March 2017. And the problem, of course, is we earlier have released documents from later in the investigation. We released documents from 2020 and also a document containing an interview with Kagan Klein from 2021. So it's important to remember that basically it's almost as if we're releasing chapters of a book out of order. And we realize that is frustrating and sometimes confusing, and we certainly apologize for that. But the only alternative is is either not to release or to delay release until we have everything and can put it in order. And we don't like the idea of sitting on information and not sharing it. Well, also, we, we might not get everything, you know. I mean, this is a situation where this is a multifaceted investigation involving multiple agencies and a very complicated crime, essentially, because, and we know that because it hasn't been solved. And so I would say that maybe if you're thinking about it, well, are they saying Logan now is the, is the top guy? Think about it this way. Um, put the Ron Logan document first in your mind. That happened first, March 2017. Then put the Kagan Klein 2020 August police interview and then put the HLN interview from 2021 with Barbara McDonald. And that's the order that chronologically these events happened. And we feel like perhaps the Logan situation in March of 2017 could go a ways to pointing, well, why were the Kleins raided in 2017, February 2017, weeks after the murders? And then why did nothing happen until seemingly August 2020? You know, first of all, the answer is stuff very well could have been going on in the middle of that. But if you want to just look at the documents that we have, it's possible that they were interested in Logan uh, and they sort of maybe wanted to pursue that route first. And I, I don't necessarily think that's unreasonable. The man lives there. This is his property on which Abby and Libby are found. And he certainly bears a certain physical resemblance to Bridge Guy, both in his appearance and in his choice of wardrobe. So it's not unreasonable to be curious about that. Yeah, and when investigators found that he had some history of violence uh, towards his romantic partners and would make threats... I think it's a very reasonable thing to to look into the man. Uh, he's right there. You don't want to be you don't want to be throwing at all these nets and then overlooking the person right in front of you. And also, I think it's very important to keep in mind when you read this document, this probable cause affidavit, is that it was written for a very specific reason. It was written to convince a judge that there was probable cause to search the Logan property. So FBI Special Agent Robertson crafted this document to get that result. That doesn't mean she did anything wrong. It just means she has a set of facts and she is only going to choose to include the facts that would help her get to her result. That's how the system works. If there was evidence at the scene that pointed away from Ron Logan, in other words... That's not going in the probable cause affidavit. The probable cause affidavit is not intended to be a comprehensive summary of all of the evidence in the case. It doesn't, for instance, mention anything about the Kleins. That doesn't mean that they have dismissed the Kleins at that time as being potentially involved in the case. It just means they're writing something about the Kleins in this particular document will not further the purpose of getting the probable cause warrant accepted. 
I think I think what Kevin says is really important here because there's a lot that you're likely not hearing in this probable cause affidavit that could be very telling or point in another direction. And that's never going to go in here. And that's, again, not it's not law enforcement's job to also, you know, to include in their probable cause affidavit. Oh, wait, but pump the brakes because, you know, I, we, this part doesn't make any sense. They're going they're trying to get access to this person's house and items and they want to be able to look through it and in order to be able to justify that invasion of a private citizen's property to a judge you need to have good reason and they're going to be picking out all their bright and shiny reasons and leading with those and and not really you know bringing up any possible wrinkles to those or alternate explanations so the language of this document. So this is not a court. No. This is not a, a like a trial. If this was a trial, Ron Logan, through his attorneys, would be able to make responses to all of the things claimed or alleged. So if you're thinking, whoa, the FBI agent said that this guy could have done the murder. Ding, ding, ding. No, calm down. Obviously, she's <laughs> like, that's what her job is. That is what the. The purpose of this document is to let the judge know, hey, we think he might have done it. Let us look. Uh, and that's and that's it. And I think people might read too much into the language of what is supposed to be ultimately sort of a persuasive document is supposed to be kind of angling it from one specific angle with a goal in mind. Yes. And Special Agent Robertson is very good at her job. She wrote a very persuasive document. Yes. But that doesn't mean that what, but that doesn't mean that the case she is putting out there is infallible. And what we do know is this search was, in fact, conducted. We don't know what, if anything, was seized. But we do know that Ron Logan was never arrested or charged with anything related to these murders. And the silence on that, to me, is deafening. That, to me, is the most important thing we need to know about the results of this. Everybody wants to ask us, what did they find? What did they find? What did they What did they get? Is he still a suspect? He passed away in January, but is he, is he still a suspect in some way? And we don't know that. We do not know. But what we do know is that nothing happened, at least publicly. Nothing. Police never came out and talked about this man. Police never uh, said that he was a person of interest or a suspect. Police never indicated that they were going to continue to go back to him. Um, he was not a, he was not arrested for this crime. He was arrested for his probation violation. And we can talk about that because that is a wrinkle to what we're saying here. But I think you have to ultimately look, were they able to try and convict him of this crime? And the answer is no. And I think that that's, that's a kind of a very important thing to note here. You know, the, just because... This document exists, does not cancel out the fact that, you know. He was never charged with anything connected to these murders. Yeah. Let's talk about, let's talk about some of the things that we find very interesting about Logan. And that perhaps, you know, the investigators initially found interesting about him to the point where they said, we think this guy might be the person who did this and, and what we feel was worth looking at and um, even some of the things around what, what how they leaned on him afterwards, seemingly. Okay, let's start at the very beginning. One of the arguments is, well, gosh, he dresses like bridge guy. Yeah. I think the fact of the matter is uh, we live in Indiana. If you go to a Walmart on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon here in Indiana, you're going to see a lot of people, a lot of men dressed very similarly to bridge guy especially if you're in a smaller or more rural area. It's a very common way of dressing. So personally, I don't feel that is all that persuasive. Yeah, I don't feel that's all that persuasive. Although one element related to that that is quite persuasive is that people who knew Logan quite well, namely romantic partners, uh, seemingly saw the image of the bridge guy and thought they were looking at Logan. And so people who knew him, recognized him, knew what he wear, wore, knew that he had even, you know, would carry a gun and a fanny pack, looked at that and said, that's that's him. That's interesting, because I think if you saw a picture of me 
even if it was blurry, you'd recognize me. Yes, I think I would recognize your gait and your, you know, what you typically wear, how you move, how you how you speak in the case of audio recording. So yeah, I think that is that's a point more of in the favor of yeah, you need to look at this guy. Uh, but yeah, I agree. The clothing seems a little bit more generic. It's not like he was. You know, first of all, the image is blurry, so you know it's very much difficult to be like, oh, that was definitely a fanny pack, or versus you know a weird you know fold in his shirt, uh, or here's any distinctive markings on his jacket. So you're kind of just going for a generic look, essentially. And you know, it. it I I agree. I've seen I've seen people dress similarly. You know, in 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 the time since those murders, and it, it's just kind of a way of dressing. Uh, the other factor is he was he was more or less there. It was his property. Yes. So the guys you see at Walmart on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, they weren't there, and he was. What do you think of that? Um, I don't know. I have two minds about it. On the one hand, I think you know you might have some killers who prefer to do things in an area where they're comfortable and they know they can control the scene and they they know everything about the layout so you know if you think that logan did it you could make that argument but at the same time um i would wonder uh why you would leave the bodies on your property because you would think that then you know you'd be looked at pretty quickly and you could make the argument well maybe it was a spur of the moment decision this murder you could extrapolate so many different scenarios either way of like some sort of very elaborate plot or something that was completely random, but it, it seems to kind of go either way. I'm just, I, it, it doesn't seem to me to be, you know, you can't really apply logic to the killing of two young girls. Ultimately it's an illogical and horrific event, but from the sense of self-preservation, leaving them on your own property seems like a, pretty bad idea. Uh, another point that is mentioned is that Ronald Logan seems to have owned some guns and knives. And my answer to that would be, this isn't a discussion about gun control or hunting or anything like that. But it is a fact that in places like Indiana in particular and many other areas across the country, a number of people hunt a number of people have guns and knives, and most of those people are fine, upstanding people who would never even think to commit a crime. Yeah. So just the fact that he owns weapons doesn't seem particularly persuasive to me. No, that seems like a bog-standard set of implements for somebody, especially somebody who's, you know, in a rural, semi-rural area. You know, you, you might have a gun to hunt, you might have a knife to hunt, and that's not suspicious or creepy, necessarily. Not at all. No. I, I, would, I would venture to say that a substantial uh, proportion of the men in Carroll County probably own guns or weapons, and there's nothing wrong with that. And now, here's, here's my question about that, though, because I, I completely agree with everything you're saying. Um, but in the case of specifically Logan... Uh, was the fact that he owned guns and he had guns in his house, was that a probation violation on its own? Yes. It was. So he, maybe there's a bit more of a, of a tainted aspect to him having some of those weapons. Uh, although you could make the argument, you know, if it's a situation where he's using them for hunting, maybe you're kind of like, well, no one's ever going to find out, you know. <laughs> like, I'm, 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 in, I'm in trouble for DUIs. So, you know, what 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 could happen to make, you know, the heat come down on me to that extent? Maybe you're just kind of trying to push the boundaries a bit and you get caught. I don't know. But you're kind of edging up to something else that is of interest, which is that Ronald Logan would seem to have had a an undeniable propensity for violence. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin 
or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We have in this document the claims of two different women who had had romantic relationships with Logan, saying that he beat them, he pulled them out of a vehicle by their hair, he told one woman that he, if he wanted to, he would be able to kill her, and hide her body in the woods so that it would never be found. What is your interpretation of that? Yeah, it's pretty horrific stuff, you know, and and in case, you know, I I always want to point out that, you know, in in many instances of acts of random violence or, you know, that seem like random violence, you have a person who is, uh, has some sort of a background in being the perpetrator of domestic violence. That can be, a red flag for people who go on to commit mass shootings or whatnot. So I think that is notable and and, and a a willingness to use violence to control others in your life through fear is certainly something. To me, this is kind of the crux of the argument to look into this man, because once you are implementing that in your life in that way, that violence, that fear, I feel like, you know, you've kind of, you got to look at that person. He's violent and he's there. Fine. Uh, that That is that is a reasonable reason, in my view, to, to look at him at, at the very least. Does that mean that it sounds like a concrete, it's definitely him? No. I'll point out the obvious. The women that he abused were adults. And they were known to him. They were romantic partners living with him. Um, These two young girls, as far as we know, they're strangers to Ron Logan. And they just happen to be walking by, essentially. Or or whatnot. I don't... It just seems like a somewhat different type of crime. And from what we've seen, there's nothing in his past that we know about at this point that points to anything around uh, sexual predation or going after young girls. And so... It doesn't line up for me in that sense, but I, I, I think I think people can escalate. People can escalate, and I think the argument would be once you show that you have the potential to use violence against someone who is weaker than you, you've always got to assume that you're, you're capable of doing that again and again and doing it in worse than in worse ways. That doesn't mean he's guilty. No. 
it it means he's a bad guy. But the fact of the matter is that around this case, there are a lot of men who have done bad things. Yes. Chadwell. Yes. Adder. Bruce. Nations. The list is depressingly long. And the mere fact that they did something bad or even something horrible does not mean that they did this particular horrific crime. I think it's really shocking for people who have had, you know, a, a pleasant existence in life, you know, up to this time to you want to think, OK, well, it has to be all one guy, right? It has to just this guy has to be responsible for all the bad acts in this area. And no, I mean, there's a lot of really bad people out there. That's just that's <laughs> that's life. And unfortunately, I think it was absolutely reasonable to look at Ron Logan. I'm not going to I'm not going to say with the violence. I think you're exactly right. You know, once you're doing that, you know what? And I'm going to add to that. This man. Seemingly with his record of DUIs and what he was in trouble for. Seems to have a drinking problem. If you're if you're drinking to the point where you're drinking and driving and that's like a something that you're consistently getting in trouble for, that is a, you have a problem. You are an alcoholic. You know, maybe you don't consider yourself one, but you are endangering other people's lives by getting on the road drunk. And, uh, and you're also incurring a ton of costs on your own life where you're getting in legal trouble and, and having to, uh, you know, lose money over that and, and lose time. And, 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 you know, it's just, it's a disaster basically. And so when somebody is that out of control with their drinking, as indicated by multiple DUIs, you have to wonder, you know, is that drinking spurring on different kinds of violence than he's exhibiting when he's sober? Or could that be something that is a factor in what happened? Um, it's just it's another element to add to this whole mix that, you know, is, is something that I think is interesting to bring up the, the drinking. I'd like to uh, continue listing some of the things that Special Agent Robertson of the FBI suggested were possible arguments for the guilt of Ronald Logan. Yeah. Uh, the next one that comes to my mind is Ronald Logan actively lied to police about his whereabouts on that afternoon, and he also contacted uh, someone to try to help him arrange to set up a fake alibi. Yeah. And Special Agent Robertson believes that if a guy is trying to create a fake alibi, even before bodies are discovered, that's a sign of guilt. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts on the alibi thing are mixed. Uh, I think, yes, whenever you have someone lying about where they were, immediately red flags. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying this from the perspective. I, I, I think it's nothing. I don't. Frankly, I think it's odd that he sets up this alibi initially for 3 p.m. and then sort of goes back, I believe, at some point in the affidavit, says that he goes back and says, oh, no, 2.30. Is that is that correct? Do I have those times right? Roughly. So what's interesting to me about that is neither 2.30 nor 3 covers the key moment, which is tw which is uh, two thirteen, which is when police believe that Libby and Abby uh, were confronted with the man on the bridge, and so you can make a lot of arguments around this. You could say, well, maybe Ron Logan is guilty, and he just didn't know what time it was. He thought it was two thirty. He made a mistake. Uh, fine. Uh, you could say that uh, you know he it, it's just you know five D chess or something. He's just he's just kind of like strategizing in some way fine I, I just think that it seems a little bit odd that he would uh do such a bad job with the alibi and again you could say maybe he made a mistake but i, I don't know i find that odd and i also find it plausible not necessarily true but plausible that when he is getting a bunch of attention from law enforcement uh who are knocking on his door we're looking for these two girls they're lost in the woods and that investigation is going on, he's starting to sweat and think, oh man, I drove this afternoon and I'm going to get in a lot of trouble if that is found out. So I need to start setting this up now. Just a completely misguided self-preservation move that backfires in a huge way. 
backfire spectacularly. Yes. That backfires in an unbelievably huge way. I don't know. I could see that. Do you think that's plausible, or do you think I'm just getting too in the weeds with this? I think it's plausible. Uh, also, frankly, we don't have enough evidence to determine what yeah. really happened. Yeah. He could have been fit making a fake alibi because he was somehow involved in the murders. Maybe not as the actual perpetrator, but maybe because he had guilty knowledge. We just don't know. But this fact in and of itself... I remember something somebody once told me in law school, which is, you know, of course, in a criminal trial, uh, a person must be found not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And what does that mean? Uh, there's many different ways to define that. And this, this way I heard it defined in law school was that if you're presented with some information and there's two ways to interpret it. And one way of interpreting it is this guy obviously has to be as guilty as sin. And the other way of interpreting it is, well, this is an innocent explanation for it. This explains why this person did this without implicating him in a heinous crime. And if you have those two options, you are obliged, if you use the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, to have to choose the one that leads to you thinking, well, maybe he didn't do it. So this information about the fake alibi, there is a reason why he could have done it that's completely unrelated to the murders. And so if you were in a court of law, that means it's not enough to convict him. Not by a long shot. And people could bring up, well, he was also driving to the dump loading station thing earlier that day at 11 earlier in the day, well before the murders. And he didn't lie about that. He didn't fashion an alibi for that. And I, I kind of just think that that could point to somebody who's just focusing on the afternoon because that's what cops are currently focusing on when they're initially asking these questions. I, I'd have to agree that if you look at this guy's life as a whole, I think it's fair to say he's not a good long-term strategical thinker. Just someone who thinks about the immediate crisis in front of him and how he can get out of it. Exactly. How do I get over this next hurdle? He's not thinking about the whole obstacle course. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't like the argument of like, oh, this person's too stupid to do the crime. I don't, I don't think you have to be a genius to get away with murder. I think you could, it's a combination of cunning and maybe a lot of luck in some cases. But I just don't know. It just, it doesn't seem, that seems to me like it very could, very well could have been a panicked move by somebody who's feeling like they're being confronted about the, the thing that they last did that was bad. And, and maybe is assuming that, okay, the girls are going to be found soon if I can just, you know, I, I'm sure that they, it, it's probably an accident and it, and they're not, you know, it's going to be. Somebody twisted their ankle and they're going to be rescued and it's going to be over. And as long as I can kind of keep the cops off my back for this afternoon, I'm home clear. And and that seems like a a realistic stratagem that I could see somebody like this taking. And it, again, backfiring spectacularly because, you know, it's easily provable that he was uh, doing what he should not be doing here. I want to mention another element of the case that Robertson uh, tries to build against Ronald Logan. Uh, she says there were a couple of text messages sent to his phone on the night of February 13th. This was the night of the day that the girls were killed. She says initial exam uh, and analysis indicates that at the time Logan received these two text messages... He was, quote, likely outside of his residence and in the proximity of where uh, Liberty German and Abigail Williams' bodies were located. You had the same reaction that I did. What did you say when you read that sentence? In that phrase, the word likely carries a lot of weight. So basically they're saying they can't be certain. It, it, if, if they could, then they would have said, no, we, we pinpointed him. He was right there. Uh, instead, they say he was likely there. Guess what? The guy lived right there. I, I don't. I don't think that means anything. 
I would defer immediately to somebody who I'm sure there's been experts who've spoken about this and we just missed it. But there's an expert who knows about how closely they can pinpoint a person standing on a property using cell phone data and ping circa 2017. Then we would love to hear from you because you know better than us. But as it's phrased, it sounds weak. And this probably isn't really relevant, but for what it's worth, there have been times I've been out and about running errands and I text you at our home and I happen to have a map up because I'm trying to figure out where I am. And the map will show me you have you have the, you've turned it on so that we can see each other yeah. or you've turned it on so we can see each other's locations on maps. And I'll look at a map. And it'll say, oh, Anya's not in the house. Anya's across the street. Anya's in a creek. Anya's down at shopping somewhere. And in fact, during all this time, you were actually at home. Yeah. Remember, this agent is trying to convince a judge to let them look at this guy's property. So if there's some sort of uh, really, you know, huge deal information around no, we absolutely pinpointed him. He was right there. On We know for a fact his phone was there. They're going to mention that, in my view. And again, there's nothing wrong with an agent building a case in a document like this. You know, because it's always possible that down the road, if necessary, a defense attorney would get the right to challenge it and say, well, you know, actually, this, this, and this may have been left out, so probable cause didn't exist after all. This is just part of the process. Yes, But it also means that as people who are following this story, we should be aware of what these documents are, what they mean, what they intend to do, what they tell us, what they don't tell us. Because if we don't have that context and we don't have that knowledge, then I think, I think, you know, for it it just becomes the usual stuff with Delphi where you have some people who are like, yes, it's this guy. And then a bunch of people are like, no, it's this guy. It's not this guy. It's this guy. And we... We we don't care about any of that. We don't care about the theories. We don't care about... We care about information, about facts, and about what they might tell us, what they do tell us, and where do we go from here. And I think that is ultimately what is what is very important about this document. We've talked about the intent with this document. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Let's go into real quick some of the things that these agents were actually looking for. Because that tells us something too. Yes. This is telling you quite a lot actually. Um Information to be searched and things to be seized. So here's where they're literally going through and labeling by name. Here are all the places we want to look, where we want you to let us look. And that's basically the whole property. I mean, outbuildings, detached garage, the building itself, the you know white Ford that he owned, 
all of that. And it's also saying what evidence they think could exist here, what they want to get. And a few things that stand up in this uh, paragraph three, uh, clothing, forensic evidence, blood seen and unseen, hair, bodily fluids seen and unseen, fibers, weapons, including guns and cutting instruments, electronic devices used to produce cellular cellular signals detected by law enforcement in the areas of the crime scene, animal hair samples. A couple of things on that list just send chills down your spine because cellular signals in the area of the murders and they haven't been identified and say, you know, they, they haven't been identified by March of 2017. So what does that mean to you? Burner phones. What, what are burner phones? I mean, it's about somebody buying a cheap phone that they can throw away on a whim and it's, you know, for yeah. some so basically, if you or I went somewhere with our phones, people could people could look at the information connected to it and say, "Oh, that's Kevin Greenlee's phone. That's Anya Kane's phone." I would imagine. I'm I'm not a technical person at all, but that's what I'm thinking. But if you can't identify a phone, I imagine that's a that's a burner phone or something. And and at this point, so, they've had so a month. So you're you're admittedly speculating. Yes, here. I am. Let's assume for the moment that your speculation is correct, and then let's speculate a little bit further. If there were burner phones in the vicinity, what would that tell you? Somebody came there, or some people came there, to commit a crime. Because a burner phone tells me you don't want to be traced. You want to be able to do something on your phone, communicate, film, record, but you do not want it getting out that you were the one doing that. So, yes, in this case, I would say burner phones to commit a crime. Somebody went prepared. The crime that happened maybe was was not not some random event. It was it was something that on some level people were going in with the knowledge that there was some sort of crime supposed to happen that day. So again, we're in the realm of speculation. Yeah, of course. But if someone knew in advance that there that a murder or a serious crime was going to be committed that day, that suggests it wasn't random, but it was targeted yes. and planned. Yes, because you have a situation where, you know, if you look back on our previous reporting on this case... These two young girls, one of them is in communication with uh, a profile that we now know is attached to a internet predator. And she wanted to meet him, according to police. So when you have those two things at play here and the possibility that, you know, somebody who's claiming to be this Anthony Schatz profile, who's not who he says he is, and he's he's aware of where these girls are going to be that day on some level, whether that's through some sort of, you know, communication or some sort of malfeasance, then you have a situation where is it possible that, you know, that was it was a it was a basically a trap, it was a lure, and and then people or a person, a single person, go in with their Cellular devices that are just supposed to be burner phones um, and commit. And of course, I'm speculating here, but I, that's what it speaks to me, at least. And, you know, as, as to, you know, so where does Ron Logan fit into that? I don't know. I don't know where he fits in. And as long as we're speculating, uh, Special Agent Robertson herself does a bit of speculating and she wonders if it was possible that the murderer, or murderers, I guess, she's wondering if it was possible that the crime was actually recorded in some fashion, either video, picture, or recording, and that's why they are looking at some of these computer devices. What do you think of that possibility? Yeah, I mean, I would be curious about, is that something that is a boilerplate uh aspect of these kind of cases where it's some sort of heinous crime against children is that something that they're just automatically putting in there to the language of their documents or is that something where certain aspects of this crime made them think that you know is it is it just generic or 
Was there something about that scene that told them we need to be looking for some sort of video about this? And I don't know what that would be. I mean, I have no idea. I, I, I have no idea. Um, I would just be curious. Yeah, I, I would too, frankly. Was it a situation where they were aware of Libby communicating with Abby? Sh- um, were they? Was it a situation where they were aware of Libby communicating with Anthony Schatz? So they just wanted to cover all their bases. And they wanted to put that kind of language, looking for video, looking for footage, looking for audio, looking for pictures in everything that they did from there on out, just in case that was relevant. Maybe. And five years later, I wonder if they have ever found any such recordings. I would imagine no, but it's possible, I guess. But could there be anything at the scene that would make them think of something like that that wouldn't be, you know, if we if we argue that it's not just a generic thing you include in cases like this? Like, what tells them, oh, yeah, we need to be looking out for this? I don't know. I don't know either. It's actually disturbing to think about because from what we uncovered here in this Logan warrant and also what we've heard, um, you know, from sources, it, it, I mean, it was a horrific scene. And there was obviously a lot of blood, so. So let's talk about this scene for a moment. This document actually reveals some details about the crime in the crime scene that have not been public before. Yes, and before we start talking about it, let's just note that, you know, this is the murder of two young girls. This is very disturbing, and um, this is what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the episode. So if that's something that could be triggering for you or could be upsetting, uh, you know, please consider sort of ducking out here no shame in that um because this is just i mean it's it's horrific what what these documents reveal about what and, happened. And we're, we're going to try to be respectful yes and not be tasteless because these are real people this is a situation also where uh the the details contained within are, are relatively vague as far as what actually this looked like but they are suggestive and they are suggestive of of how the crime scene looked at so so it's not i don't feel like we're really getting that in depth about the scene it's just more of what sort of factors are at play here so what what did the document revealed or what that it said really stuck out to you so the girls are killed with a weapon that causes a copious blood loss and creates a very bloody crime scene to the point where investigators believe that the killer would have likely gotten blood on him. And so that, first of all, is incredibly disturbing. And second of all, sort of creates questions in your mind of, well, how did this guy walk away without anyone noticing that? Another thing that kind of jumped out at me was it indicates that there was no evidence that the girls put up a fight right what does that suggest to you it could anything i mean it, it could be something where this is a an utter blitz attack that perhaps they they did not expect the attack to come when it did um it could suggest the the possibility that um they were coerced and and fearful and trying to comply which is you know Frankly, I think what a lot of people would do in a situation where they're being menaced by by somebody, and you know, you just when you when you're in a situation yeah. like that, you always cling to some hope that you can get out of it, and that if I just play this right, it'll be okay. And so maybe they were. You know, this is just awful to think about, but that's yeah. And I mean, what's so horrific is that you know these two girls are best friends; they're very good friends, so. You have to imagine that the killer is able to use their connection with one another to get them to comply. Because not only if you fight back or if you run, you're basically uh, relegating your your friend to die or be harmed. And, you know, that's that's a measure of control that this killer is possibly able to wield over them. We're speculating here, but I mean, I imagine that, you know, these ki- these kids are close and, and that's just that's got to be just horrific you're you're not just worried about yourself you're worried about your friend and of course it's also very possible that the reason why they didn't put up a struggle was that there was more than one killer 
And when there's more than one killer, it's easier to maintain control. And one thing we've speculated about with other cases like the Burger Chef murders is that, you know, it's possible that the killer was was very persuasive and, and indicating I'm not going to hurt you. I just, you know, basically lying to gain compliance. And that's always a possibility. And as you said, if you're if you're in the situation and you don't feel you can run because other people, you know, your friend might get hurt or you feel like you can't outrun them. Um, you're in the middle of the forest, essentially, perhaps your brain is going into overdrive of like, how do I stay alive? And and that's a survival mechanism. And that's, you know, in, in many cases helps people stay alive. So it's not, um, it's not unreasonable. It's just killers, you know, might lie about what they really want in order to gain compliance from their victims. I frankly find it very, very upsetting to think, about the actual murder and the moments just before that. I don't really like dwelling on it more than we have to. Are there other things about those moments? No. Okay, let's jump ahead to just after the murder, where according to this warrant and the accompanying affidavit, there is every possibility that the killer took some souvenirs. Yes, So what the affidavit describes are two articles of clothing taken from one victim. We redacted what kind of clothing it was uh, on the request of law enforcement. But that's highly suggestive. And the agent who wrote this affidavit felt the same way. Nikki Robertson wrote that, you know, in cases like this, sometimes killers take, quote unquote, souvenirs. Um, so obviously very disturbing, almost seems to indicate some sort of, you know, possible sexual motive. Uh, I would say in this case, there you have to highlight alternative possibilities, I think. And and one is that, you know, this, this crime took place near Deer Creek. Is it possible that somehow... You know, in in the in the struggle or or in in some sort of you know movement, that items of clothing were somehow lost and not removed from the victims. I think that you have to at least have that as a possibility. I imagine that law enforcement went over this whole area with a fine tooth comb afterwards, but things happen. Yeah, there's a non-zero chance of that, but I think when we look at this type of offense and look at the the nature of people who commit this type of offense and their proclivity to want to take souvenirs, I think it's more likely that these were taken by the killer myself. I, I tend to agree. I think that's the most likely explanation. I just want to, you know, whenever there's a possibility of several different avenues, I, I want to highlight that there are alternative explanations. And there's another third option um, the killer took clothing, not for their own sick purposes necessarily, but because they wanted to give an indication that it was a different kind of crime than what it actually was. So we're kind of segueing here into the fact that uh, Special Agent Robertson indicates that the bodies were moved and staged. Yes, I'm going to say in regards to the clothing, I tend to think it is what it looks like, which is that the killer had some sort of, it it went towards the killer's kind of twisted psychology mind, whatever. I I think that that's the most straightforward option. And that's the one that I think makes the most sense based on everything else we know. And and also based on this staging, but you know, on the murder sheet, we tried to kind of stick with the facts and talk about the various possibilities, you know, what, what different options are essentially in regards to this crime. With that in mind, what do you think are the various possibilities regarding the scene, the scene and the bodies being staged? The language about the bodies being moved is something that seems to strike a a lot of people as possibly meaning the bodies were moved a great distance. I guess theoretically it could mean that, but it could also mean that the bodies were moved a very short distance in terms of whatever, however they need to be moved for the staging process post-mortem. Right. And and this, to be clear, these documents give no indication of which they're talking about. It just 
There's nothing in the language to suggest either way. I think what's the easiest possibility that they were moved a short distance because that's the le- the least work for the killer and requires them to be on scene not as long, basically. It's also the least risky move for the killer because uh, shortly after the girls went missing, there were some pretty massive and substantial searches done in that area. And so I think it would be very difficult logistically to go back into that area with two bodies and dispose of them there. Right. Um, the other thing that we've talked about a little bit and, and what we can kind of go into more depth on here is, you know, what does staging mean exactly in this context? And to be very clear, it's not described. The the what What the staging is is not at all gone into. It's just very vaguely talked about. Um, and and that's for the best. Yes. For for reasons of taste and also for reasons of weeding out false confessions. If we don't know how the bodies were staged, if we did know, I think we would uh, most likely not share those details. Yeah, because that that's something that you could get into people giving false confessions because how they were staged is a very specific image that perhaps only the killer and people who've studied the crime scene, like, you know, law enforcement and investigators would know. So, you know, I think it's, I think the public knowing their stage gives an indication of the crime, but we don't need to know the details on that at this point, because having that information get out, I think would be a, would be a situation where people looking for attention, people who have all sorts of demons could be coming forward and trying to pretend that they were the killer. Now the staging, you know, and we've, we've had conversations with other people and we've had conversations among ourselves, you know, staging seems to kind of fall into two big categories. One is staging done for the purposes of, of concealing a crime or um, misdirecting in, in a crime so I think the example we used on the show was, you know, pretending that a homicide is a suicide. I don't think that's what happened here. I actually, I really, I, I strongly think that this was a different type of staging and that would more fall into the category of moving and manipulating the bodies in a way to either shock first responders or um, degrade the victims in some way or, or just be very, um, upsetting or explicit and, and that, um, you know, or I guess you could, you know, a, an offshoot of that, that would be less, um, maybe not with the intent to, to degrade, but maybe with the intent of, you know, expressing some regret or something, you know, if you cover, if you cover them with a blanket or something that could indicate, you know, perhaps some, some kind of wanting to, I don't know. There, there, there seem. I mean, it's it's just really horrific to think about somebody doing this, and and uh, we don't know how it was done. So, I know we know that Doug Carter at, at the press conference in 2019 seemed to indicate that there was something very disturbing about the way the girls were left in the woods. So, we've sort of I think used that to f- color our own thinking about it. And frankly, uh, to some extent, I'm less interested in the details of precisely how they were staged than in the question of why was it so important for the killer to do this he had just killed two innocent young girls he is in a public place it's not a super crowded place these trails but nor is it a deserted place if you go out to delphi there is a pretty constant trickle of people along these trails. And any one of these people who could show up at any time, there is the potential there of them seeing him. So why in this highly risky situation he has placed himself in, why is he taking additional time with the bodies to move them and stage them? What does that tell us about him and what does it tell us about the crime if anything well as you said i mean this is already an incredibly risky broad daylight crime against two victims so it speaks to a level of 
comfort, confidence that he's going to be able to do exactly what he wants without getting caught on the scene. I mean, forget forget getting caught afterwards. I mean, the the, the I mean, uh, the first question is are you going to get caught on the scene? And if you're taking time to do this in addition to taking on two people and abducting them from a public trail. Yeah, it's it's this this um this I mean, whatever you want to say, the killer does not seem to have a huge issue with risk. Before we wrap up, I want to take a moment to discuss a little bit about our discussion with law enforcement about this matter. When we when we called and talked to them and told them we had this warrant, we had a couple of long discussions with them. And at one point during one of those discussions, we were told that our earlier reporting on this case and the attention generated by our earlier reporting on this case actually had a positive result, that it that it resulted in getting this case in front of more people and it resulted in the police actually getting several good, useful tips. That is what they told us. And them telling us that was, frankly, gratifying. And it is our hope that the attention generated by the news about this warrant and the affidavit will also generate even further tips. And it's certainly our plan to continue to work on this case. Oh, yeah. This is a situation where I really believe that... I believe that there's internal disagreement within the investigation over what to release and what not to release. Everything points to that from what we've heard behind the scenes. And that's understandable. I think these these agencies, these agents, these investigators have been working on this for a long time. There's a lot of passion and dedication. There's also a lot of, nobody wants to make a mistake. But this was a situation where after we spoke with law enforcement and we elaborated to them on what exactly in what what information exactly does this document contain and you know what are we going to you know how are we going to cover it um those conversations i think were enlightening for us in terms of learning okay well maybe this is okay but maybe these details need to be kept out of it for this reason it's a situation where we're kind of working with them essentially to redact certain things based on their requests but other things that we've heard, again, behind the scenes from sources kind of indicate that there is an awful lot of information that nobody knows about except for those investigators. And that this was in many ways a very, the word that gets used a lot is bizarre crime. This is a strange crime. This is a distinctive crime scene, potentially. And the document, the Logan document, only really hints at that. There's no real detail about what we're seeing here other than a few very vague and broad ones and so i think we all have to keep in mind that we don't know what we don't know at this point and another thing i'd like you all to keep in mind is that if you think you might have information that might result in this case finally being solved please please reach out you can reach out to the police you can reach out to us and, we, and we'll make sure your information will get to the police. But please just reach out and share what you know. It could be really crucial. If you have information that you'd like to share with us about Logan, the Kleins, or the Delphi case in general, then email murdersheet at gmail.com. We protect our sources. If you need to get in contact with police about this case, email your tip to Abby and Libby Tip at C-A-C-O-S-H-R-F dot com or call the tip line at 765-822-3535. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, 
or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.